Hello, welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. I am delighted to have Jenny Plant on today. Jenny is an old client of mine who I met when she was running a very tough media business. And we worked together over several years on and off. And she was one of my favorite clients ever. So today, I'm very pleased to introduce you to Jenny Plant. Jenny, let's hear a little bit about you, how your career has evolved, and what it is that you do to help your clients. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for the lovely introduction. First of all, I want to thank you for inviting me on here. I think it's a huge honor. And I absolutely really loved working with you. And you actually changed the course of my career. I know that sounds quite a big statement to make, but actually it's, it's totally true from my perspective. And you shaped what I then went on to do when I left my corporate role. So Can you tell my kids that I'm not a total oaf? <laughs> yeah, just give them my number. I'll tell them. So in terms of my background, I started working in advertising in an advertising agency in 1990, actually. It was time of big shoulder pads, huge mobile phones. We didn't have email. I know that makes me sound like an absolute dinosaur. We used to use the fax machine. Do you remember them? Yeah. It was just everything was by fax. When I started out, we had telex machines. Oh, God, yeah. Telex. Blimey. Telex. I know. Just, Are you it, pretending to remember? I know, I do. I'll tell you why, because my dad was working in the print. He used to work with the Sun, and he told me, he took me to work one day, and the whole business was run on telex. <laughs> and, yeah, seriously. So, yeah, I, I was working in an ad agency in my early 20s, and basically it was a matter of hitting the ground running, and I was managing client relationships. And I went from agency to agency throughout my career, really, through 25 years. And it wasn't actually until I was general manager of an international ad agency managing a team of about 50 that I really, you stepped into my life and sort of told me what I should have been doing 25 years ago. And it would just, I realized that I was actually in the business of sales and not relationship building. And I didn't have a commercial bone in my body really. And yet I worked with you for three years during the time of being this general manager and suddenly stepping up to the plate. I was so inspired by what you showed me. It completely changed the way I managed client relationships. And I saw the impact on the bottom line through asking the right questions, by understanding what my a lifetime customer value was, looking at profitability harder. And I basically made quite an impact on the business from commercial and the financial point of view, which was tightening up all of the things that we should have been doing in the first instance. So now, um, when I left corporate, which was eight years ago now, I started my own account management training business because I really wanted to share what I'd discovered and what I'd learned so late in my career with other account managers. And what I was shocked to see was these intrinsic ways of operating were still going on. That's what I wanted to ask you about. And thank you for that. That was a delightful stroke. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> um, so tell me this. I mean, if you look at your average creative agency, whether they are advertising, PR, digital, whatever, what are the common themes that you see being repeated in terms of wrong beliefs? To start with, I mean, last year, the IPA published a statistic that the average of the top 50 creative agencies in the UK, the average profitability was 9%. How much? 9%. Was that gross or net? Don't know, pass. But 
either way, that is quite shocking. And in terms of wrong beliefs, I think one of the the biggest wrong beliefs is that, and it's, you know, it's just the way it is, is that you have to pitch for business. And pitching itself is probably one of the most costly things, as any business owner will know. But in the creative industry, usually you're up against three other candidates. So you've got one in four chance of winning it. There's usually someone that's already been put forward that you don't know about. Often you don't have access to information from the client in order to really understand their business enough to do a decent pitch. So, and it takes the top talent out of your agency for at least two weeks. So it sort of jeopardizes the rest of the business. So the belief that you have to pitch for business is just being repeated and repeated. And you've got now these thought leaders like Blair Enns, who's written a manifesto called Win Without Pitching, which is if you are an agency leader or owner, you should really read it. I mean, it's just, you know, why is that something that we don't already know? I mean, I don't know any other industry that operates like this. Well, I, I hate to tell you, it's actually very common. IT companies do it all the time. And media and IT are probably two of the worst, but engineers do it. You'd be amazed at just how rife it is. But in media, it's more obvious because more often than not, you tie up so many people. I don't know if you ever saw the Channel 4 series, The Pitch. Yes. I'm amazed my television screen survived because I was shouting at it so frequently and so loud. And I had to buy myself a rubber brick so that I wouldn't actually put something through the thing. This raises the big question. We teach that salespeople have rights. What are the rights that you teach your clients they have? What are the rights that we have? I mean, the right to a fair price, for example. So costing and pricing in the creative industry is another big issue, I think. And we don't do ourselves any favors because we run a lot of the agencies on a timesheet basis. So we're selling our hours where really the actual added value that you give to a client with your strategic thinking and your creativity adds such an, a huge amount of value to the client's bottom line that we're not, we shouldn't really be selling our hours. And this is another belief that is rife in creative industries where we are selling our hours. So the right for, to a fair price, I mean, professionally trained procurement people came on the scene in my history about sort of 20 years ago. When I first started, there was no such thing as procurement. Now, procurement goes through rounds and rounds of training. They are so professionally trained, but the average creative industry agency leader walks into a meeting and has no sort of background in negotiation. So they often say yes, because we generally, a lot of us are people pleasers. And so right there, you are not prepared. So again, I think that's another huge thing that you need to kind of look at is your profitability levels. I think it's all about winning the piece of business rather than looking at whether this business is going to be profitable. That's a really important point because very often people buy bad business and procurement, as you said, are trained to beat the selling out of the sales process. And I have a client who operates in the industrial chemical space and one of the account managers goes to meetings where she's literally yelled at by procurement. We want a 30% discount. And if you don't give us a 30% discount, we'll buy from the competition. 
And they started out doing that when she first started her uh, new job. And I taught her how to handle that, how to stay calm, smile, and then look at them. And uh, her response when they said uh, when they said that kind of thing would be, I'm so sorry, I just zoned out. What was that you said? And that throws them. Uh, and she ended up getting a 23% increase. Now, it takes guts to have constructive conflict. But the problem is that too often, like you said, people are people pleasers. And this then comes back to self-concept. So talk us through a little bit about the journey that you've gone through and how you help your clients go through that process of realizing that they have worth and that they bring added value. For me, when I first started working with you and you kind of made me um, write down my Bill of Rights, I think it was called, I kind of, it was quite an interesting exercise for me because I, I know, first of all, no one had ever asked me to do that. And I'd always defaulted to pleasing, to saying yes, and not really pushing back enough. And it was something that, you know, I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about. I mean, Sandler teaches about, you know, it's a combination. Being good at sales is, it's about your technique, first of all, where there's, there's loads of strategies. It's also your attitudes, but it's also behaviors. So my attitude at the time was, well, I can't really say no, and I can't really push back, and I can't ask why. So I suppose the first thing was asking the difficult questions. And you taught me some techniques, which I still use today, was you know, asking for, for permission to ask the question. Mm. Like, do you mind if I, you know, I'm really, thank you for meeting me today. I, I know this is going to be quite an in-depth discussion we're going to have. Would you mind if I ask you quite blunt questions? You know, is it okay with you? Because some of them might sound a little bit direct. And it's, they, they often smile, but it kind of sets the tone for the discussion. And really, I can say what I actually want to say rather than thinking, oh, that's the customer. The customer is king. I can't ask that question. And actually, that was the biggest shift for me was asking those, asking the right questions. I mean, I remember a time when I, I had a piece of business at the time. I think it was worth 1.5 million. And we'd had the account for a couple of years. And I was getting the signals that they were looking to put the business out for pitch. And yet we were heading towards quite an, a key time uh, for their launch. And you sort of talked me through um, talking to the client about asking them, do you really think this is the right time to put out this business to pitch? And I thought to myself, wow, you know, yes, of course, I've got to ask that question. But I would have never have done that in the past. But I did. And that's, that's that confidence that it, it kind of gave me. And I thought, like, you know, would you mind if we had that, this discussion? Because I think I'm going to ask you a few questions that you may, they may come across quite blunt. And they said, no, Jenny, yeah, of course. And then I went on to ask these questions. Do you really think this is the right time to be pitching this business? You know, I can sense that things aren't going as well. Tell us what we're doing really, really badly so that we can, you know, fix this stuff. And anyway, we ended up on the phone for about an hour. That was the first time and probably the most lengthy discussion I've ever had with a client where he was talking 70% of the time and I was asking questions 30% of the time. And I think this is the other thing. I mean, you started by asking me about, you know, what intrinsically is, is wrong with the industry. And I think one of the things is we don't ask enough questions. We think we have to be the ones with the answers. We think we have to be the ones coming up with the solutions and look at our case studies, look at what we've done. 
where we are really, we should be looking at our client's situation and understanding their world in their shoes and thinking, how can we add the most value here? But you can't find that out without understanding and asking the right questions. You've tapped into two critical points here. The first is that you aren't learning anything when your lips are moving. You're only learning when they're talking. And you're only learning when you ask the right kind of questions. The other thing that you've touched on here, which is um, it's becoming more and more popular phrase in sales generally, is the customer experience. And the customer experience normally conjures up customer service, which is after you've made the sale, after you've implemented, and people just look at that end of it. Um, but I have a firm view that the customer experience begins before you ever speak to them. Uh, a lot of salespeople tend to do drive-by shootings, and they pitch something, and then they you know, take an order, and then two, three years later, they come back to sell them some more. Now, the reality is that these are living, breathing, sentient beings, mostly, and they have expectations. They have hopes and fears, worries, concerns, anxieties. They're under pressure. And unless you start by building your proposition with the customer at the heart of it, I think you do yourself and them a disservice. So I'm curious in terms of how you've been implementing that understanding in terms of taking an account manager and moving them away from selling product in that you know it could be design, it could be branding, it could be PR, whatever, and focusing on the customer, who they are, where they are, how they got there, and what you're doing in order to shift that mindset to the behavior, attitude, and technique all coalesce to ensure that the customer gets what they need as well as what they want. Fundamentally, what I teach is, first of all, focusing your time in the right areas. So looking at the business in terms of which piece of business is most profitable and where can we see, if we focus our time there, can we see the most growth in that account? And let's not forget, I'm dealing with account managers that are dealing with these clients on a day-to-day basis. So the relationship is usually already established. And it's for them, it's this shift with understanding, first of all, where should I be focusing my time? Who are the who are the growth clients? Who are the gold clients? And who are the bronze clients? Because again, that was something that I hadn't done before I started doing Sandler. And I think in most other account management roles, like key account managers, they know that intrinsically. They know exactly where they should be focusing their time. But traditionally, we hadn't done it. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, getting under their skin. So, you know, saying at the end of the meeting, would you mind if we put aside 20 minutes at the end of our meeting where we can sort of ask a few more questions about where you're at and how we can add more value and how we can help further. And then using that opportunity to ask the right questions. You know, first of all, what are you what are we trying to achieve? Always asking about the objective. And then is there anything stopping you achieving that objective? Can you see any barriers to moving forward? And you know, what have you tried in the past? You know, what's worked, what hasn't? So it's, it's coming back with questions. And I know it sounds really obvious and I know it sounds quite simplistic, but it's really, really the more I see young people, particularly as an account manager, asking these questions, their confidence builds. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about 
not have saying, well, I know how we can solve that for you. You need one of these. You need an ad campaign or you need um, an e-detail. You need this, you need that. It's saying, well, let's suppose we were to put together a campaign to help you solve that issue. Would that be something that you would want to do? Who else needs to be involved in that decision? What kind of budget do you have for that activity? So it's using you know, closing them during the conversation rather than, again, going back to the agency, spending another load of time developing a hugely elaborate proposal and then coming back, presenting it in the hope that you've hit the nail on the head. So it's it's kind of saving time again. So those are the kinds of things that I'm arming account managers with, you know, how to ask those questions. And I just, I've seen a huge shift. I mean, I remember one of the first ever people that we were teaching. I mean, I think you came in to see the see my team and I think we had an account executive. And you'd think, gosh, they, they're not long into the role. They don't know a lot about the industry. But just by empowering them enough to say, yeah, go do, go and ask those questions to the client. She was the one coming back who had landed another piece of business that had landed a, another a project, you know, so it's almost like there was no head trash. There was no kind of, this is the way I've always done it and this is the way I'm going to continue doing it. I'm not saying you can't teach old dogs new tricks because I'm living, breathing proof that you can do that. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was another ma- massive, I think. Uh, I was so proud of her. Yes. That, that, that was the day the account director got uh, trapped because someone had thrown themselves under a train and uh, she had to run the meeting on her own, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was fab. No, I've I, I dined ass on that story a few times. Okay, that's really helpful. So back to this whole piece around putting the customer at the heart. We've talked in the past about lack of commercial acumen. What are the areas that you see account managers failing to understand? And as a result, they leave opportunity and money on the table. They leave the customer or the prospect feeling not understood, that results in these long, painful sales cycles, uh, work going to pitch, and then uh, spending their lives chasing after having spent days, weeks, or months knocking together a proposal? Well, for example, I, I started working with an agency, and I was working with effectively an account director level person who had been moved onto the board as head of client service. So there was a big, big sort of gap there in terms of her experience. And the, one of the first questions I asked her was, what's your forecast? And so she sort of told me what her forecast was for the year in terms of account growth. And I said, well, how did you determine what the forecast should be? And she said, well, that's kind of set by the board. I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, it's kind of my managing partner that comes up with what the growth should be. So you've been given a target to reach but you've got no idea how that target has been set other than it's going to be plucked out of the air and t- someone's told you it's got to be a 15% increase, for example. What kind of a start is that for you? Because she was kind of setting out on a footing that she hadn't sort of understood why her forecast was what it was and explained to her that if you were to have meetings with these senior most clients for all of these, for all of your client base, senior meetings, to establish what their pains are, to establish how what their situations were and how you can be adding the most value and, and coming up with a figure based on that discussion 
rather than just setting a blanket benchmark, would you not see that that would be more realistic or more achievable? And she sort of said, well, yeah, I would, but it's just never the way we've ever done this before. You know what I mean, Marcus? I just found that quite stunning. I think this comes back down to the question around self-concept, which is that certainly in my experience, and I've worked media companies probably 20 years now, no one sees themselves as a salesperson. They're creative and other drivel like that. People don't buy advertising because they want to buy an advert. They buy advertising because they want to sell more stuff. They don't buy PR because they want PR. They buy PR because they have a message that needs to be projected out to sell more stuff, or they want to stop bad news circulating, or whatever it happens to be, because that affects share price. So the challenge here is how do you drill into a new media person who's coming in maybe the first or second job and they're starting to have to go out into the jungle and bring home prey and get them to focus on the right end of the problem. We do an exercise where we look at what are you actually selling? What is what is your client buying from you? So I ask the question and we have a big list of things they perceive the client is buying. You know, our, services. Yeah, our creativity, our service. We do really new, innovative technologies, blah, blah, blah. And then we sort of drill down and just as you said, and say, actually, what you're actually selling is business outcomes, the business outcomes that you're helping your client achieve. And the more that your conversations can center around business outcomes, the easier it's going to be for you, the more you're talking the client language. So we actually make three columns and we say, right, say, take, what are you selling a service, like a, a website, for example? Well, let's say, put the website in the left-hand column. What's the next column? What's features and benefits of a website? What are the benefits? Well, you know, they have, they're generating a better customer experience. We're projecting our authority in our website, blah, 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 with all of the usual things that we use to sell a website to a client. But then I say, well, draw a third column. Well, what's the business outcome that that website is going to help them achieve? And we go through an exercise where we look at actually what's the difference to the bottom line. You know, you're going to capture more leads. It's going to be an increase in lead generation. It's going to maybe reduce the sales cycle if you're talking about something that's not launched yet. So I think that's the other thing is just taking people step by step through you're not selling the drill you're selling the hole in the wall kind of analogy. And remarkably, that is still relatively a new piece of information because in fairness, we aren't trained. We don't get training as account people. Often people who start ad agencies and creative agencies maybe have come from an ad agency themselves and they want to start on their own. They haven't traditionally had any training in sales or negotiation skills. So it's the becomes the blind leading the blind a little bit. And I'm not saying there aren't hugely successful agencies that haven't received any training. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying I've noticed that, and I talk to loads of account managers, they're relatively unprepared. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, as the market speeds up, clients are looking for agile teams. They're looking to for projects to be turned around with lightning speed. So it's putting pressure on account managers to work faster and smarter. So 
you just need to, I think, step back and look at the business a little bit more with a long-term strategic head-on. And I think this is what people don't take the time out to do, maybe. It's interesting. I I remember um, I sold to uh, a small agency. They were operating in leisure retail travel. The sales meeting with the two founders was really interesting because the founders kept talking about how important it was to be creative and how creative they were and how much their clients love their creativity. And I mean, I'm not recommending this as a strategy, uh, but I did end up walking around the table asking one of the partners to give me his hand and then I slapped it. Uh, (laughs) If I ever heard him talk about creative in a sales context again, I'd fire him as a client. And they hadn't signed up. They ended up taking a 50% pay cut uh, to pay me. And we grew their sales revenue by 200%, but their profitability by 500% in a year. And they went from 14 to 30 people in that year. They acquired three companies and their retirement plans had been set back in 2008 by 11 years. And we had them back to six months behind target uh, within one year. And they're both still within the business now. Uh, One of them CEO, the other one's chairman and semi-retired. But they love it. And they're making really good money. And and the, the challenge there was getting them out of the mindset that they being creative is what makes them different. Every agency out there is going to make the claim, it's our creativity, it's our people, it's our experience. And you cannot be different by sounding the same. I mean, you, this, you've just hit, on, hit the nail on the head. And I think a lot of agencies are guilty of it. And I mean, that sounds like an amazing transformation. And I'm sure they're delighted with that I think what you're saying is and still talking will, to me anyway <laughs> <laughs> I mean a lot of agencies don't niche down I mean when we're working with clients we always tell them you know we know it's counterintuitive but from a marketing perspective the narrow you, narrower you focus on your target audience the more compelling your offer becomes and the more you can charge for but it's not something we do for ourselves so with agencies generally, you're kind of taking on business willy-nilly. And by doing so, you become generic. And so you're competing with all and sundry. Whereas if you decide to narrow your focus on maybe a particular industry or a particular type of audience, the narrower you focus, the more compelling you are, the more you can charge your clients. And you find that you're not the one competing for business so much. So that's another sort of commercial thing that you can do as an agency leader to make sure that you're not just constantly pitching. Well, I see that in my own business. I don't niche to a specific industry vertical, but I do focus on just 3% of the market. And these are people who are ambitious and driven, want to scale up fast they're angry. I need people who are angry to work with me because um, I'm not that pleasant to work with. And they're looking at at least triple digit growth and they're ready for all the pain that goes with that. And in doing that, I'm also looking for people in crowded, competitive, price sensitive, bid and pitch driven markets. And just by focusing on those sorts of people with the right attitudes, people who keep their word, who can take direction and are ambitious enough to go through the pain and remind themselves of why they're doing it, then we can routinely get 300, 500% increase in profitability. 
mean, revenues, we can grow by triple digits as well. But frankly, that's not important. What you keep matters much more than what you make. And I think this is where the power dynamics in the relationship are really interesting. Because what tends to happen, I see this in media a lot, but I see it in virtually every other sector, is that there are three lies that the buyer has taught salespeople. The customer is king, the buyer is always right, and the man with the gold makes the rules. And the second a salesperson believes that, then they put the customer on a pedestal and they give away their power. And then there's the other undermining factor, which is that lots of people, particularly in uh, media, I've seen this, they say, oh, I'm not a salesperson or I'm not a natural salesperson. And they're embarrassed to tell their mum that they're in sales. So I'm curious, again, what kind of problems you see as a result of that? Because um, they, it's certainly been rife throughout the time I've worked in media. And I'm just keen to see if you echo that. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose the other thing I'm, I'm thinking of at the time is that we're seeing this shift generally. Traditionally, you've had these big agency networks. And one of the um, upsides of being in a network, obviously, is you've got all these sister companies that can offer different niche offerings. So together, theoretically, that's how it, how it works. Like you have this multiple services you can offer to your client. The downside is new business often gets operated from a central perspective. So it's one part of the company that's going out to get new business they make the decision on what piece of business gets pitched. And every part of the network has to pitch for that piece of business. So regardless of what's going on at a local level for your agency, you are being pulled in to work on a global piece of business, for example. So it's that um, not making that decision to for your own profitability and your own bottom line. I think that's one of the one of the things that from a commercial perspective, I hadn't realized. And I, I was always wondering why I keep running and running and running and I just don't seem to be getting anywhere. But it was almost like that decision had been taken out of my hands. And I think what I'm seeing is lots of people leaving big networks and setting up on their own so that they've got more control over what piece of business they take on and what they don't. I mean, before we started recording, Marcus, you were telling me about you know, my fees are eye-wateringly high. Now, there's a reason for that because you're bloody good. But I yeah. think, <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to agree to that. But there's, I think this is what smaller agencies are starting to do. They're splitting away from these big networks where they don't have the control so that they do have the control. They can set the price. They can work to, with the client the, the way they want. So it means that perhaps you don't have to have 50 clients you can actually have three and give them extra value but work with them setting a higher price you know if you charge more you can spend more time working on their account the the industry that i see that is the absolute pits of this is recruitment who on earth would work on 12 different projects to get paid once you see contingency recruiters doing this all the time and in media, it's all the pitching and the free consultancy that gets done. I remember when we first started working together, there was uh, one guy who was centralized, who was uh, finding all these RFPs and farming them out. There was one point you had 35 on at once. You can't possibly 
run 35 pitches at once and expect to do a halfway decent job on even one of them. The net result of that is that people get overstretched, pulled from pillar to post, and they drop the ball. And then because they need to win the business, because they're under pressure from this centralized machinery, then they find themselves making stupid mistakes. They discount prematurely. They don't say no to business. And too often, I think the day of the large network is seriously at risk. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as definitely being a good thing because what you're effectively talking about is a partnership sales model where a number of agencies will work together on a prospect piece of work to deliver each of their own areas of specialization and do a much better job because they're not being pulled from pillar to post. They're not having to be a, the Germans have a wonderful word, which is an egg laying, wool making, milk producing pig. And it's a dangerous thing to have to be, but it requires very different skill set. And the way I see the industry evolving in media is the people who will be running sales will have qualities closer to a general manager or a chief executive than a creative director or a salesperson because they need to be able to manage without power, only influence. They'll need to be able to engage at every level of their partner's organization, their customer's and prospect's organization, and their own, to be able to juggle all those resources so you have the right people having the right conversations at the right time. Because you're up against sophisticated competition, extended sales cycles, a need to focus on business value, very high cost to pursue, very wide, diverse buyer networks, complex decision structures, and a cross-functional sales team and a cross-functional buying team. That takes a very different beast to somebody who just turns up and shows a couple of creative boards and says, well, what do you think? Absolutely. You're absolutely right because you're right. There are so many moving parts. I mean, from the client perspective, you've got their head office, you've got all of their affiliated company spin off parts of their business. It mirrors what you've got in the network and bringing that all together does take a certain type of person, I think. You're absolutely right with the, the skill set. And communication is high high on the list. I think the other thing that you asked me about the Bill of Rights before, and I think the ability to say no, you know, no, we don't want to go for that piece of business. We don't want to take that opportunity. Thanks very much. You know, pre-qualifying a pitch opportunity before you make the decision to go for it. And when that right is taken away from you and you have no choice, I think I found that very debilitating. I'm painting it to be really bad. I mean, I'm not. There was loads of things that were very good um, because you've got a huge amount of very, very skilled talent and expertise. But I think now, this point in my career, when I set up my business eight years ago, I have now control over the only people I need to please are my clients, but I can set my price. I can decide whether I work with an agency or whether I don't. And that is very freeing. Yes, you have to develop yourself and your understanding of how to run your own business. But those principles that you were teaching me whilst I was in situ in a corporation have served me for running my own business too. And I think that's the key thing about Sandler. And when I used to come to your executive briefings and look around the room to all of these different people from different industries, different businesses, different business types, I was quite astounded at how 
the Sandler kind of principles ran through every single business. And it was almost like being part of this secretive club. And I'd never, I couldn't understand why I'd never heard of Sandler before. And everybody was having sort of light bulb moments. It's like, oh yeah, yes, I could actually do that, couldn't I? I mean, one of a, a mutual friend that we have, I remember that you were talking to him about going to a global pitch opportunity with no slides. Do you remember that? Yep. <laughs> and, you know, that... No slides, were, no pen, no paper. <laughs> and that was hugely successful. I mean, he's a, an absolute superstar. But it was just having that, like, empowerment to say no or to flip it round to say, no, I'm actually here to ask you questions rather than me beating my chest and telling you about me That's doing the dog and pony that. show. Uh, absolutely. I think the dog and pony show is a habit rather than a necessity. And too often we see people just fall into the pattern of behavior and they end up in the buyer system. And that loses all the control because it's the seller's responsibility to control the sale. It's the buyer's responsibility to control the decision. And the problem is if you throw all of that into the buyer's purview, then they're in control of the whole thing. And all you are is a passive pawn in that process. And we've touched on the commercial acumen from the side of the agency. When we dig into the business requirements and the different aspects of why a business may need to invest in media of any description, what are the typical drivers, uh, other than the obvious ones of more sales and more profitability, what are the other commercial aspects that you're getting your clients to investigate in order to help them demonstrate their value without giving away the family jewels? Including like showing clients, first of all, what impact they've had on the bottom line um, for, for other clients as a first, in the first instance. I think it's also demonstrating value, not only with the services that they, they provide, but also how they can add value in other ways, like silly things like, you know, a client that's maybe working in a big corporation themselves and is in control of a marketing budget and marketing spend. For them, yes, it's about reaching their targets and yes, it's about increasing sales or increasing number of prospects and stuff like that. But it's also the value an agency can bring to sometimes save them from disasters. You know, like if this conference doesn't go well for me and I don't get all the materials developed in time and I don't get all of this stuff printed or this AI that we're going to use or this virtual reality game that's got to be on the stand, blah, blah, blah. Then my boss, I'm actually in jeopardy. My boss is going to get rid of me. Clients now have that pressure. Well, they always have really. It's not about reaching their targets. It's also about their job, their position and, you know, their lives. So it's also understanding that aspect from an agency's point of view, working with a client. It's understanding, yes, it's about business outcomes and what I can do to help them reach their financial targets, but also the value I can bring to help them in other ways. You know, maybe they're, my client is looking to raise their profile in the industry. Then how can I help them do that? Can I make some introductions? Can I write maybe a thought leader piece in a, in an industry magazine? to help develop this relationship further. So it's understanding 
your client and what they want and what they need. Another thing that, you know, Sandler opened my eyes to was, are they, what kind of client are they? Are they a driver? Are they a compliant? Are they a, I can't remember the, I think it's DISC, isn't it? Yeah. Social Relator. Social styles is the same, you know, analytical driver, supporter. But, you know, that's another thing that you can teach an agency so that then they don't get pissed off maybe when you get a client that's saying, look, I want this, I want that now, and they, they have zero conversation with you. It's understanding that that's the way they prefer to communicate rather than, you know, this, this guy is just a nightmare. And similarly, when you do have a, a client who likes to see the numbers, likes to see the backup, the data, you are not talking at odds with that client. So again, it's adding value and understanding the client from another perspective. So there's this multiple skill set that you need to develop as an account manager, I think. And I think that was the, the thing that when I started working with you, I thought, blimey, all of this stuff I didn't know, like the Cartman Triangle, mm. you know, that was another eye-opener for me, being vulnerable and this kind of victim-persecutor role and looking around in a corporate, especially when you're at that level where you're in charge of an agency, you're kind of, there's a book like, I think you gave it to me or you told me about it, Swimming with the Sharks. Sometimes it can feel like that, can't it? Because you're dealing with all of these personalities and the job is kind of hard enough as it is. You know, you're holding it all together. You're getting the, the client happy and delivering the work. But then you've got a pitch and another pitch and then all of a sudden you're stretched. And then you've got to, rep- you've got to reach those targets and demonstrate your worth to the, the company and deal with your boss. And I just think there's just multiple things going on that I think a lot of what Sandler teaches can help you with. So yeah, I know I keep defaulting back, but you and I met through Sandler and I, I still, to this day, I mean, I'm still referring people to you because it made such a massive impact on me. Which I'm eternally grateful. Thank you. You're um, welcome. So wrapping all of this up then, if you were speaking to someone who is moving into their first account management role, what are the top two or three tips you would give them uh, in order to break away from the people-pleasing, um, you know, falling into that buyer-seller dance trap? I think the first thing I'd say, I would recommend to read some books, actually. I know that sounds really practical, but some account managers don't even think that there's an issue or they don't know what they don't know. and you handed me a book, The Principles of Sandler. I can't, it's the, yeah. the rules, Sandler yeah. rules. Success principles. Success principles. And the other one was like, you can't teach a... You uh, can write a bike seminar. And those books, I think, just reading it in my own time started to enlighten me. Now, if you're not generally interested in developing yourself, then it can be a bit of a stretch. But I think fundamentally start there because you don't know what you don't know. And you might think you know all the answers. And no one can tell you anything because you, you, maybe you're on a roll at the moment. When you hit a wall, either you're in a negotiation and you're, you're out of your debt or the client has asked to remove you from the account. You know, you, there's all this stuff that can happen as, a, and as account manager. I think it's that, that's when you start falling back on your toolbox of skills that you can acquire by reading, by developing yourself, by following people like yourself, who are thought leaders and picking up these little tools and strategies. And ultimately, 
also having a boss that is supportive of you starting to implement these skills. Because sometimes that's where you hit a, a brick wall is you're reporting to someone internally that is themselves not really enlightened to all of these selling skills that you can have. So that's what I would say. I know it sounds quite practical, but read some books. I, I agree. I mean, um, other books I'd recommend that people read, Jodie Williamson's The Contrarian Salesman is a parable about going through the process of hitting that wall and then driving through a process to become more effective and then taking back control without being aggressive. I'd also read Asking Questions to Sound Away by Antonio Garrido, G-A-R-R-I-D-O, fantastic book. Prospect by John Rosso is all about filling the pipeline. And I would also recommend, um, at the risk of sounding self-serving, Making Channel Sales Work by me and uh, David Davies. And that's all about selling through partnerships and how to build a partner network, how to be able to sell without power, only influence, and being able to build a powerful sales network that is predictable and effective without having people on your payroll. And that's really hard. Another book, the, the uh, Sander Success Principles and the Sander Rules books are very good. Two other books that I would absolutely recommend, three other books actually, Essentialism by Greg McEwen, which is all about doing less but better on purpose. Yeah. Fantastic book. That was a life-changing moment for me. Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday and learning how to get emotionally detached from the sales process and see life for what it is and to keep your ego subsumed. And possibly the single most powerful book I have ever read in my career is Just Listen by Mark Goldston. Oh, yeah. That, again, is something that I recommend. And I saw that you you interviewed him, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it was just a joy. Um, oh. In fact, I've got a series of videos coming out uh, that we've just had back from the editor. So there's a whole series of conversations between me, Mark, and Amir around ethical selling. I can't wait for that to come out. Honestly, that, that was another life-changing book for me. Absolutely loved it. The other one I'd add to that is The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. H-A-R-D-Y. Yeah, H-A-R-D-Y. It's just the law of compounding, basically. Anything that you, do you know, even if you were to read, for example, a couple of pages of a book every day, by the end of the year, you will change your mindset. You know, just anything that you're going to do, do a little bit every day. So if you're an account manager, you think, don't be overwhelmed by how much you need to learn. Just break it down. Well, I teach the half a percent rule. And the half a percent rule is what can I do today to improve by half a percent? Love it. When you compound that over the course of a 270-day working year, that's a 373% return on investment. Now, that's probably enough. If you go for the full 1%, you're talking about 1,400% improvement. Now, it's not that that's not a good thing, but keeping up with that and making sure that you've got the people in the systems and preempting what needs to be done, that can just spiral out of control. So somewhere between half and 1% a day is what you need to focus on personally, but everyone in your team. If you think about it, you know the, the old proverb is a rising tide raises all boats. And if you're concentrating your energy on making small, tiny, incremental, but consistent improvements, 
then miraculous things happen. And you see businesses literally triple, quintuple, octuple in size over the course of a year. And they do so without having to take on more staff. That book, Essentialism, was lovely. It was a real eye-opener for me with the realization that you could do less but better on purpose. We have a motto in our business, which is double the money for half the work. And I'm trying to get down from two hours work a day to one. Love it. Honestly, that I've just been writing those uh, recommendations down. The other thing, oh God, I could go on forever, but there's just one book actually recently that has really made a difference to my business, which is Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. And oh my gosh, it really, if you are a business owner of any size, basically, the understanding of accountancy is not always an agent or a business owner's strong suit. But this book really does break it down and help you manage your finances and help you become more profitable. It's been absolutely game-changing for me. How do you spell Michalovic? Oh, God, now you're asking. M-I-C-H-A-L-O-W-I-C-W, Z, yeah. Excellent. Well, those are uh, great recommendations. Thank you. Uh, I agree. I mean, if you're setting up in business, you need to learn how to run a business. Michael Gerber talks about the entrepreneur's triangle, which is entrepreneurship, manager, and technician. And most people just operate in the technician space, and they struggle to ever grow a business. It's Typically, what they grow is a job that pays them an income. If they're lucky, they grow a practice, which is basically an expanded job that grows them an income, but they'd never grow a business, which is an independent organic entity that if they get clipped by the number 73 bus and spend the next six months in traction, it's not going to make any difference to the running of the business. So yeah, all that commercial side is very important. But if you're thinking about setting up an agency, please, please, please subscribe to Paul Lanigan's video podcast. Subscribe to Jody Williams' videos. Subscribe to the How to Succeed podcast by Sandler. And I've got my podcast, which you're on here. My YouTube channel has 400 videos. And obviously, get in touch with Jenny. She really knows her stuff. She's got a fantastic pedigree and a great track record, especially in the last eight years, of turning agencies around. Jenny, would you mind giving the listeners your contact details? Sure. You can reach me at jenny at accountmanagementskills.com. And thank you for the plug, Marcus. Delighted. It's been lovely to chat to you. Really enjoy it. And, you know, let's meet in Chinatown again. Absolutely. Big fans of Chinatown. And what we could do a, an account management Chinatown lunch. You know? We could. We could do that. Okay. That's, that, you're on. Excellent. As you're better at organizing things, I'll leave that in your control. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's called the art of delegation. On that note, that's Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast saying thanks for listening. Bye.